passion is what makes you successful in any endeavor in life or the absence thereof is directly attributable to your failure to be successful. really is. Amen. If you are a Sunday school teacher teaching a class, an elementary, middle school, high school teacher, professor, you're an attorney, you're a doctor, no matter what it may be, a nurse, an oil field worker, a worker in a bank, how far you go in life is going to be determined by your passion. Don't expect success to come sit on your doorstep. And it's on that basis that we've looked at the text that has become our theme for this year. Ecclesiastes 9 and 7 says, say it with me. Shout it out loud with me. That's what you've got to do. See is life. And I've told you that for people who have passion, we also, as the people of God, have access to resources others do not have and that we can call upon God's supernatural abilities to enable us and empower us. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In Hebrews, it says we have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, our circumstances, and we should therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain grace to help or obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is on the basis of this fact that God is moved with passion. These verses say that we can get God to get involved in our situation. I have been studying how do I get God to get involved in my circumstance. And to my amazement, the scripture taught so many profound different ways that people moved God to be active in their lives. Everybody would like the edge that God could provide. Everybody would like to kick it over to that next dimension and level. Passion enables you to do that, but passion manifests itself in different ways. Some, it was in an extraordinary prayer they prayed. Others, a great sacrifice they made. Others, great worship like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail when their backs were beaten and bloody. God looked at that and said, wow, that's loving me under the worst of circumstances and he caused an earthquake, and the prison doors sprung open, and they had a revival. They moved God to get involved in their circumstance. Of late, I've been talking about Nehemiah, a nondescript cupbearer, which, as we've already pointed out, simply was a euphemism for being the guy that was supposed to taste the wine before the king did to make sure it had no poison in it. He went from that lowly, ignominious position where we never would have heard from him. How many other cupbearers have you heard from in biblical times? Nehemiah wasn't the only one. You do realize somebody replaced him whenever he went to Jerusalem, don't you? You don't hear that guy's name mentioned in Scripture. This guy with a, one of the worst jobs that you could possibly have suddenly is catapulted to prominence in the pages of the Scripture the book of Nehemiah literally becomes the turning point where the entire Old Testament turns to lean and then leapfrog forward into the New Testament. When Nehemiah shows up on the scene, Israel is in apostasy. They've been carried away into Babylonian captivity. The city has been destroyed. The temple ransacked, torn down. Nehemiah single-handedly goes back to Jerusalem, rebuilds the wall, 
sets in order preparation for the reconstruction of the temple that will take place under Zerubbabel, brings the Jewish people that were carried away into captivity back home, reminds them of their destiny. He didn't just build a wall. He reconsecrated them to God and said, you were born with a promise of God upon your lives that he gave to Abraham that through you would come the Messiah. Nehemiah literally took an apostate nation, turned it around to face God again, and made it possible for the Messiah to be born. He was a leader. And I've been looking at some of the leadership principles that Nehemiah employed. How did a guy from that kind of lowly position ever become so prominent? Well, this is what we're studying. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray today that you will speak a word that will help us to be Nehemiahs in this present generation. And everybody said, Amen. I want to make a statement. And this statement is not born out of a lack of loyalty to my country, but rather it is because of my extraordinary love for the nation I have been privileged to be born in. I want to make this statement and see if you agree. I would think that personally America is almost in as bad a shape as Jerusalem was when Nehemiah showed up. Think about it for a minute. Think about it. Christianity is on the run in some areas in our nation, many areas. We are facing threats of terrorism. What's going to happen if Iran gets a nuclear weapon? We can play the ostrich and bury our head in the sand, but we live in a different world than we did in a few days ago. I did something the other day that I'm going to challenge every head of a home here to consider doing, every mom, every dad. You think about it. You pray about it. You know what I did? This is going to repulse some of you because it repulses me. But to be cognizant of where we are and aware of where we are, I sat down the other day and I watched some of the videos of the beheadings by these ISIS people that are putting them out there. You haven't done it yet? All I can say is if you want to know what tomorrow is holding you better sit down and see what's going on in our world right now. It's not the same world you were born into, baby. I can tell you that. Things have changed. The barbarism, the cruelty is unbelievable. It's a dangerous hour and a dangerous time. Nehemiah ministered in similar circumstances. So what I want to point out is no matter how hopeless it may seem to be to anyone, I can tell you based on Nehemiah's story that nothing's ever beyond the hope of God. And I want you to know that we, the church, can still turn things around. Yeah, we can. We can still turn things around. But as I said a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, the mistake that we have often made is we have delegated to governments and political entities what is actually our responsibility. Because while they may have political authority, they do not have the spiritual authority to deal with the forces that are actually behind some of the things that are going on right now. You watch one of those and you will learn in a hurry that there's something underneath all of that. 
That's not just politics, honey. There's something evil that is underneath that and wicked. And if you're going to bind the strong, if you're going to spoil the strong man's house, you better bind the strong man first. And you can pass all the laws you want to and Satan just laughs. It's time for the church to bind the strong man. We are the ones with the political authority necessary to get the job done. But it's important that we know what our specific calling in this world is. Are we called to just attend churches on Sunday morning for an hour and a half and go home and be our own the rest of the week? No. We need to understand what the specific role of the church is in this time of crisis. If there was one thing that Nehemiah understood clearly, it was his specific calling and what he was there for. You understand what I mean when I say specificity, don't you? Got a joke for you, okay? Boudreaux, y'all don't mind if I tell you. <laughs> I hope you're not getting tired of my Boudreaux jokes just yet. I'll find another joke here in a little bit. But many people in the church are a whole lot like Abair. Now I can do this, like I said, I'm from Louisiana, so okay. I have Boudreaux and Abairs in my family. Okay? So Abair calls the law firm of Boudreaux, 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 and Boudreaux. Okay? And he wants to set up an, a meeting. So he said, uh, yeah, uh, this is Abair. He said, I wonder, is Mr. Boudreaux in? And the person that answered the phone said, no, sir. Mr. Boudreaux is out for the day playing golf. And since it's Boudreaux, 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 and Boudreaux, Abair says, well, then can I speak to Mr. Boudreaux? Meaning the second one. And the guy on the phone says, I'm sorry, but Mr. Boudreaux is out of town on business and won't be back for two weeks. And again, since it's Boudreaux, 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 and Boudreaux, he asks the third time, can I speak to Mr. Boudreaux? And the guy says, well, Mr. Boudreaux is out sick. He's seeing the doctor right now. And finally, the guy says, since it's Boudreaux, 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 and Boudreaux, he says, well, can I speak to Mr. Boudreaux? And the guy said, well, sure, Shad, this is Boudreaux. Why didn't you say so in the first place? <laughs> Specificity. You get my point. In the absence of a specific course of action or direction to be taken, many people don't know what to do. And the church seems in this modern time to be at a point right now where we need to remember that. Nehemiah came in just such a situation, and I close my series on Nehemiah with a few more points taken from his example that are so powerful and impacting. Leadership principles. To empower his people, Nehemiah taught them they could experience divine favor if they sanctified their lives unto God. The church today needs to know that we can have God's supernatural favor restored to our nation and the nations of the world if we will sanctify ourselves unto God. Amen. Serve God with our whole heart. You see, when you live for God, life always is greater than it would be if you don't live for God. Always. The choice is ours. Deuteronomy chapter number 30. God said he sets before us either a blessing or a curse. We get to choose. Choose God, you get blessed. Ignore God, you don't. So if you sanctify your life unto God, what does that mean? According to Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, the generic meaning of sanctification 
is the state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer. When they sanctified vessels to be used in the house of God for worship, they set those vessels apart and said, this is for the use of the master in worship. They cannot be used for anything else. You and I, when we were created, were sanctified by our creator for use by our master. Amen. Every person in this building has a divine purpose in their having been born. I realize that one of the doctrines of today, and it is a doctrine more than it is anything else, is that, is, and by doctrine I mean it has theological implications, is that today people choose to believe in many places in evolution, though it is in reality a theory that has never yet been proven, and there is no evidence actually at all to support it, contrary to what you may have heard. I've done the research, and anyone that's serious about research will tell you it's not even there. There is no link. Amen. And the reason that is so diabolical is if you believe you were evolved and were not created, that one belief strips from you the sense that you have a destiny and a purpose for existing in this world. You need to know, and I've said it often, every single individual that ever is born was created because God had something for them to do in this life. That's you. That's everybody. Amen. You say, well, I don't feel very special, and uh, you don't know the circumstances, and I, it doesn't matter. You still have a call on your life. Like Jeremiah, before God formed you in your mother's belly, he knew you and ordained you. To a specific purpose. Can I hear an amen? You say, but you don't understand what I went through to get here. My mom and dad never married, and I was a product of this or that or the other. Look, you may not like the bus you got here on, but God intended for you to get here. Amen. Might not like the vehicle of delivery, but God still saw to it you got here one way or another. I wish somebody in the house could hear me. Amen. And you are sanctified for the master's use and set apart by God. The problem is the church seems to have forgotten this. And now serving God really means going to church on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. And the other 166 and one half hours in that week now belong to me. Uh-uh, you have a reason, you have a purpose for which God called you and created you. Notice this, Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3. Now on the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, notice stood, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. Do you realize what that means? Six hours they read the book, the Bible. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Another six hours they worshipped. That's one church service that lasted 12 hours long. That might be a little bit much for folk that live today. Today's world that want to go see the Texans play, you know what I mean? But Nehemiah was calling them back to recommit themselves to God. 
re-sanctify your lives. He took a nation that was depleted, downtrodden, underfoot, almost annihilated into nothingness, a people that had been destroyed by the Babylonian siege. Many of them executed. Some of them carried away into captivity. He went back into the middle of all of that. Oh, I love his story because his passion got the notice of the king he was serving. He may have been a lowly cupbearer, but the king noticed that something was going on. And when he saw that kind, of, that kind of passion and Nehemiah shared with him what it was about, the king underwrote the cost of rebuilding Jerusalem. You don't know what God might show up and underwrite the cost of if you get enough passion that you can't live unless it happens. Amen. Nehemiah goes back, finds these people wasted, downtrodden, nobodies. They had lost their national and their individual identities and certainly their corporate identity as the people of God. And he calls them back into repentance and says, separate. In the absence of others living there, many people had moved in and brought with them their idols. And there was, it was just a, it was a mixture of idolatry and paganism everywhere you turn. Nehemiah said, come back out of that. You're God's people. God called you for a reason. God raised up Abraham and put a call on his life. And you may have been through some rough places, but God's not through with you yet. Amen. And if you will turn to God, God's still going to send the Messiah through you just like he promised. And do you know what he did? Those people sanctified their lives unto God once more. And Nehemiah elevated a nation that had fallen into obscurity and made them great again. You need to hear what I'm saying. There is a way back to greatness, America. There's a way back to greatness, Europe. There's a way back to greatness, and that's to honor God. Amen. And Nehemiah helped the people to do that. And there are a couple of things you need to notice. In today's world, we have become consumer-oriented in our mentality to such a remarkable degree that it even affects our relationship with church and the things of God. Think about it. Think about it. We, if we don't like the house we're in, we'll go get another one. Don't like the car we drive, we'll go get another one. Don't like this restaurant, we go to that one. Don't like these clothes, go buy those clothes and so forth. Nehemiah was reminding themselves that you don't get to do that with God. That's what got you into this thing to begin with. You can't play consumer with God. Amen. It's all about him. It's not about us. Amen. And I'll tell you how strongly I believe this. I believe, you want, you want to know how, how strongly I believe it? I don't even really believe I got to choose whether I came to be pastor here or not. That was God's choice for me. And I either get on the ship or the ship's going to sail and I get left behind. I'll tell you another step uh, 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 of this as it unfolds. Show you something. I don't believe you get to choose your church either. Mm -mm, I really don't. You know what the Bible said? God takes the solitary and sets him in a family. God chooses where you are placed. And you need to understand that you are here by divine and providential appointment. That God connected you. Amen. You see, what we can sometimes do and to show you how consumerism and that mentality plays out in churches. Let's say somebody gets mad because somebody does something that offends them in a church. You know what we do? We're gonna move down the street and go to another one. And God says, that's not what I told you to do. I put you here. 
your blessing is here. You remember what he told Elijah? Go to the brook Cherith. I have commanded ravens to sustain you there. Not over here, right here. You over here, there won't be any ravens showing up. Over here is where your blessing is at. I need a little better amen right now. And I want you to understand that that is because God calls people together that have a calling on their lives, a purpose on their lives. And we're honor bound because I'm not my own. And neither are you. You're bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. We're honor bound to honor God. And sometimes, you know, maybe a ministry needs help and somebody says, you know, I'm gonna leave and go because that ministry right there, this one I'm a part of, doesn't have a real good program in this area. And maybe the reason that, that you're noticing the program is not so good is because that's what God actually wants you to help change. And so if you don't stay and change it, guess what? It doesn't get fixed and you don't either. You never discover your purpose. And I mentioned that because, uh, well, he was in here a moment ago, but uh, Finney, Finney Taco, are you and Sindhu in the, in the service right now? I think they've, had, they've stepped out. They just started the Awanas Club program here a couple of weeks ago. Over 100 kids, 38 volunteers. Rather than just saying, we don't have a program, you know what they did? They stepped to the plate, rolled up their shirt sleeves, and said, we're going to get it done. Thank you for supporting them in that. that I love that. Amen. In every area of life, there's always a place where you can make a contribution. And listen, not only did Nehemiah point out that God has placed you here for a reason, but he also helped them understand that they were to rededicate themselves toward those divine purposes. Look, we all make mistakes. A photograph is not the same thing as an entire movie of your, your life or career. One snapshot of something you did in a few seconds doesn't define your whole life. And but what we all need to understand is when those snapshots are not what we want to see in the album, rededicate ourselves back to God. Recommit ourselves back to God. Amen. Turn our faces to God again and seek the face of the Lord. Amen. And we will experience divine favor. Not only did Nehemiah teach them this, but he also lived every day himself in the light of eternity. Every day. Look at Nehemiah 5.15. But the former governors who were before him had this position, who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. They laid on them a tax. I'm not talking about the tribute tax that was paid to the king of Babylon. Instead, I'm talking about these guys in these positions use their positions for self-aggrandizement, for self-means, for self-gratification, for a way of making themselves, you know, have a little more. And Nehemiah said this about it. He said, yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Why didn't Nehemiah come in and do like everybody else did? He said, because I fear God. I'm living every day in the light of eternity. I wish there was one message I could send to Washington, D.C. It would be that verse right there, live every day in the light of God's grace. Amen. Someday we're going to have to face God. Every pastor needs to live that way. 
I need to live that way. Every boss in a business needs to live that way. Every foreman, every business owner, everybody you know needs to live that way. Today, I may face God before the day is over. And need to, you need to understand that fear there actually is the word that means awe or reverence for. It's not that, oh, God's showing up. I'm terrified. Let me go hide real quick under the bed. That's not what that means. It means I have such reverence for God. How can I live any other way than to let my life show my respect and regard for him? Every day of our lives, we need to live in light of eternity. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. I would add one other statement to that. You can't fool God any of the time. Amen, somebody? Someday we will give an account to God and that's true of even those of us who are in churches and Nehemiah taught the people by example don't you wish the pastors of L.A. could hear me preach right now? Amen. Live your life every day in the light of eternity. The next leadership principle was he taught them to live for a cause greater than themselves. Nehemiah lived for a cause bigger than himself. Do you want to know the number one reason why so many people feel empty? It's because they do not have a cause bigger than themselves to live for every day. That's right. They feel like if something happened to me, there would be nothing left to make any remembrance or notice of where I once had been. I believe it is this lack or this absence of an objective worth living for that most frustrates humanity today. And you're spending your life on something every day. You really are. Whether you know it or not, you're spending your life right now. My question is, what are you spending it on? Because tomorrow you got one day left, less, left over rather. You, tomorrow you'll have one day less left over, let me say it right, than you do right now. What did you spend that day on? And at the end of the week, you're going to have a week less left over than you do right now. And what defines success to you is a question every one of us ought to ask ourselves. Nehemiah's definition of success was different from that of most. The governors who came before him, their idea of success was money and bank accounts, prestige, title, position. That's all they wanted. They could have done what Nehemiah did. They could have rebuilt the walls, but they didn't. They could have taken steps. They could have awakened destiny of the lives of God's people. They could have said to the downtrodden, God's not forgotten you. You still matter to God. They didn't. They used their positions to line their own nest. And I want to ask you, what defines success to you? Because what defines success to Nehemiah was not what most people's definition of success is today. Nehemiah's definition of success was, I'm going to make my life count for God and for humanity. And when I leave here, I'm going to face God and I want to hear him say, well done. And I want somebody to miss me when I step off the stage. I want to have so lived my life that I made my life count. You ask what defines success? Well, is it fame? 
Is that success? In that case, one of the people that I personally, forgive me, I'm going to make a remark, and you may be a hater after this. I'm not a hater. But one of the people that I think is so missing it with their life has plenty of fame and therefore is one of the biggest failures up to this point, and I'm praying they'll get turned around, is Kim Kardashian. Amen. I'm serious. Amen. And you think I'm picking on her. I'm not. And there are a whole lot of others in the same boat with her. Do they have fame? Yes. You say, but look, they got millions of followers on Facebook. Baby, have you figured out yet that if somebody's your friend on Facebook, they're not really your friend? I got 500 friends on Facebook. That's nothing. I got 5,000. My response is, you're both wrong. Neither one of you have 500 or 5,000. Just somebody, because somebody clicks you on Facebook doesn't mean that they're your friend. You want to see how much of a friend they really are? Ask each one of them to send you a dollar. You want to know who friends are? Friends are there for you through thick and thin. Friends are they who walk with you in the middle of hardship. Friends are the ones who look you in the eye when you're going astray and they tell you that you're off balance. Today's world, the social media in today's world has so affected our definition of what a friend is that if somebody is a true friend to you and says you're making a mistake, you know what most of us would do? We would delete them from our account. That's what we do. Those are the ones you need to keep in your account, sir. Am I helping anybody right now? Yes, sir. But she has her own reality show. That and 10 bucks will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks and a donut or something. So what? You say, but money, wealth, that's real success under that definition or by that definition, Saddam Hussein was wealthy beyond measure, so he must have been greatly successful. They found in his palaces pallets stacked with $100 bills wrapped in cellophane. They found pallets with gold ingots and bars stacked, filling entire rooms. You think Saddam Hussein was successful? All right, position, that must be what it is. That's a good one. If I get the title or the position, then I'm successful. Really, Hitler had the title. Hitler ruled most of Europe. You really want to go that route? No, let me tell you what success is. Success is when you come to the end of your way and God looks at you and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of the Lord. That's success. It's making your life count. And it's for people to say, I miss that person because they meant something in life. Leo Tolstoy's tale, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian author and novelist, his tale of how much land does a man need addressed this very issue in the latter 18, uh, 1900s. Amen. In Tsarist Russia, during the time the Bolsheviks were rising and communism was preparing to take over, Tolstoy wrote the story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? 
And in those days of wide open spaces where there were thousands of miles where nobody lived. He told the story of a man named Paham. Paham was a poor man. And he heard about land and he decided if I had land, he said I could become wealthy. And he went to this distant village. And he met the heads people of the village, including the chief of the village. And he said, I need land. And what he didn't know was that the head of the village, the chief of the village, was actually the devil. And he said, I want land. And the man smiled. The chief said, we've got all the land you could possibly want for as far as you can see. And he said, well, what do I need to do? And the chief said, well, just get out in the morning and all the land you can walk around in one day is yours. So he started in the morning, he put his stone on the path and he started walking and Tolstoy said he didn't walk fast and he didn't walk slow. He just started out walking. And after he'd been going for some hours, he turned around and looked and he had come so far, he couldn't believe it. All of that land is going to be mine, mine. And he picked up his speed and said, if I can do that, how much more land can I get if I walk faster? And he started walking faster until in the afternoon, he was going even faster And finally, he sees the sun's going to go down, and he's running now, and he sees them waiting, and they're saying, hurry, hurry. They're cheering, hurry, hurry. And he's running faster and faster, and the chief is cheering, but it's really the devil. Cheering, come on, hurry, hurry. And he keeps running, and he makes it back to that little stone they put on the side of the path that now has encompassed all of these thousands and thousands of acres. And Tolstoy said when he got back to the starting place, he fell over dead. And Tolstoy answered the question, how much land does a man need? And said, after all of that, he ended up with just six feet. What are you racing for? What matters to you? I'm concluding, but leadership principle, the next that I want you to understand or see is Nehemiah demonstrated that the way to become a great leader is to first become a great follower. You become a greater leader if you're first a great follower. I've actually waited until I got to the close of this series to tell you this. Does anybody notice that Nehemiah first learned fellowship before he learned leadership? Okay, you don't believe that? I got some wine I want you to come taste. There's a 50-50% chance it's got some poison in it. And if you live, I'll taste it. He was a great follower before he was a great leader. He got his own spirit right. He got his own heart right. Look at Nehemiah 6, 5 through 8. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time in an open, with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you're rebuilding the wall that you may be the king in Jerusalem is what he's saying. And you've appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you saying there is a king in Judah. I know what you're up to, Nehemiah. You came here to rebuild the wall. You came here to rebuild the temple. You came here to restore the people so you could be king. And Nehemiah, I'm gonna tell the king in Babylon on you. And you know what Nehemiah said? Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done but you invent them in your own heart. Amen. People will question your motives, but if you learn to be a good follower, amen, you don't have to worry about the ego thing anymore. You can get it out of the way. Nail that to the cross early on in your life. 
It's not about you. It's not about your name. It's about the kingdom of God. That's why you have a destiny. And here's what I'm really trying to say. Whenever you honor God with your life and fulfill the destiny he gave you, guess what? You become a Nehemiah. You would have never been heard from if it hadn't been for the fact that you honored God's call upon your life. But because you did, now everybody's going to know who you are. Sanballat and Tobiah accused him of being disloyal. In conclusion, the last principle is Nehemiah gave God the glory for all he had done. The wall was finished. The people's lives were elevated. Jerusalem had become prosperous once more. The temple was getting ready to be rebuilt. People had risen from being downtrodden underfoot, hated and despised to become once again the mighty people of God who were going to, in a short while in the future, were going to give birth to Messiah. And he would come as the savior of mankind. Destiny had been restored. Mandates had been reclaimed. Prophetic promises were now secured. And this man, Nehemiah, he could have stood up and said, look at what I did. I remember when Jerusalem was nothing. I remember when there was nothing but stones and rubble and you, you and you, you were nobodies. You were starving. You were people who were in bondage. But then I came along and good old Nehemiah, if I don't mind saying so myself, I helped you out. Nehemiah did not do that. At the end of the book of Nehemiah, when everything is done, listen to this, Nehemiah 12 and 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singings, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. You know what Nehemiah did? He said, let's give God the glory. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's one of the most important leadership principles you will ever, ever, ever learn in life. He had completed his assignment, risen from a lowly, ignominious position as a cupbearer to now becoming the mightiest leader in the Old Testament era. He finished the wall. He brought security to the people of God, restored their destiny, restored their sense of identity, recommitted and reconsecrated them to God and made it possible for Messiah to be born through them once again. He even succeeded in getting a pagan king to underwrite the cost of the project to get all of this accomplished. But at the end of the day, you know what he did? He gave God the glory. He didn't do what Nebuchadnezzar did, who when we read about him in Daniel 4 and 30, walked out and looked at Babylon and said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? No sooner did Nebuchadnezzar say that than a boy spoke and said, your sanity is taken from you at this minute. You will live like a wild beast for the next seven years without clothing. And then you're going to see who rules in the affairs of the kingdoms of men. Amen. Nehemiah didn't make that mistake. He had already heard that story. You know what he did? After everything was done, he said, get everybody together and let's celebrate and give the honor to where it goes. It belongs to God. And he said in the words of Andre Crouch, this statement, how can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you gave to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels cannot express my gratitude.
all that I am or ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood, he has saved us. With his power, he has raised us. To God be the glory for the things he has done.